God, we thank you for your love for us this morning. We worship you and praise you as the almighty God, the God who created all that we see, and the God who made things new, beginning in your son Jesus and his resurrection. Well, Lord, we worship you and we ask that in this time that we, we have gathered together and begun to open your word, that you would be gracious to us by, by speaking in words that we can understand, in words that meet the questions, the situations of our lives. We thank you that by your spirit you've promised to meet with us and to form your life within us through this living and abiding word. God, move in us, we pray, in power. Encourage us today, we pray. And we ask all of these things in the name of your risen, reigning son, Jesus, and for his glory. Amen. Now you can be seated. We are beginning a series today on the book of First Peter. We have just finished a series on the Gospel of Mark over the last few months, and as tradition has it, the Gospel of Mark is based on the preaching of the Apostle Peter. So in a sense, we've been hearing from Peter indirectly as we've looked at the Gospel of Mark, but now as we turn to this epistle, we will get to hear directly from Peter himself. We are calling this series A People of Hope. This is a grim moment in our world, and we are bombarded, obviously, by bad news every day. We desperately need hope. Hope is critical to endurance through trial. Viktor Frankl, the Austrian uh, neurologist and psychologist, famously made this observation through his time in Auschwitz and three other Nazi camps, as he writes about in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Those prisoners who lost hope, he observed, quickly lost life. Many of you are no doubt familiar with the unforgettable story of Louis, Louis Zamperini, told by Laura Hildebrand in her book, uh, Unbroken. One small detail I noted when reading that book was the, that Louis' friend Phil, the pilot of the B-24 that crashed into the Pacific on May 27, 1943, that Phil was sustained in the subsequent 47-day journey on a raft, it'd be hard to call it a raft, and the survival at sea, and the two and a half years in POW camps after that, by, by holding on to a picture of his girlfriend that he carried with him. It was the hope of a future life with her that sustained him in the midst of great trial. For Christians, our hope rests not in some weather-torn image of what we long for in this world, good as that may be, but in our assured future with Christ in the new creation. This is our living hope which we will unpack more together throughout this series and particularly starting next week when we arrive at verse 3. This pandemic is, I think, forcing, forcing all of us to consider the question of hope more seriously. What is our hope resting in? Is it in the things of the world which moth and rust and pestilence can so easily destroy? Or does it rest in the unshakable promises of God? Whether you're a Christian or not, this is an opportune time to think again about the question of hope. And 1 Peter, as a letter, will help us to do just that. Martin Luther described 1 Peter, Martin Luther was a bit of a king of hyperbole, I would say, but he described 1 Peter as one of the noblest books in the New Testament. And he said, the one who understands this letter has without doubt enough so as to not need more, 
because the apostle did not forget anything in this letter that is necessary for a Christian to know. That is high praise indeed, but that high praise needs to be cautioned with or accompanied by a warning. This is not a letter for the faint at heart. It is a letter infused with the crucified Christ, a Christ whose past suffering is the model for our present experience and whose present glory is our, is our hope and our promised future. As such, the letter of 1 Peter is a foil to countless false gospels that prevail in our world today. Gospels that promise, even sometimes under the guise of Christianity, health, ease, well-being, respectability, glory, and honor in this present life. In contrast, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us something better. The present possession of true indestructible life and the peace and joy and rest that accompany that life, even paradoxically in the midst of great trial and hardship. And they offer us this life in the crucified and risen Jesus and with this life also the assured hope of future glory that belongs to all who belong to him. But the reality is, is that this true life that we're offered in Jesus can also cost us the very things that the false gospels of our age promise. Wealth, power, control, and a life that is free of pain and suffering. That was the experience of the Christians in Asia Minor, to whom Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as he identifies himself in verse 1, writes, those in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These territories are part of what is now modern-day Turkey, and they represent a landmass that's just a bit smaller than the landmass of the state of California. In other words, this was a large territory with significant diversity across the regions. Yet across this diverse land, the common experience of Christians was one of suffering. To know Christ for them in that day and in that place was to experience suffering and hardship. And their suffering, we don't think, was, yet the, was not yet the result of the official and universally applied policy of the Roman Empire. We are too early for that. Most likely sometime in the early 60s is when this letter was written. But they were likely facing suffering from local authorities or even neighbors due to their lack of participation, for example, in the imperial cult, which was the way through which these Greek lands paid homage to the Roman emperor. Non-participation in this apparatus and many others of the, of the, 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 the majority Greco-Roman culture was a threat to the fabric and stability of society. And this would have been frowned upon and caught the attention of local leaders, raising their suspicion. Of course, this suffering did sometimes include the loss of life, but it could also include the major and minor annoyances that Christians in places like Egypt today experience on a regular basis. They are tolerated, sure, but discriminated against regularly. It's not hard to imagine that the suffering of these early Christians and the hardship that they faced provoked responses that is similar to our response when we encounter like difficulties. This raises questions. It, raises, it causes fatigue and discouragement. It challenges our sense of justice and threatens our confidence in the love, goodness, and faithfulness of the God that we serve. Is following Jesus worth it? Has God abandoned me? 
Do I really belong to him if this is what I'm experiencing in my life? If this is what my life looks like? Should I give up on following Jesus? Who of us has not felt this way at various points in our Christian lives? Especially when we're facing significant trials. Peter writes to urge Christians to endure, to bear up under trial, to thrive even in the midst of suffering. He states this purpose clearly at the end of his letter in chapter 5 verse 12. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's his aim. That's his purpose. Peter wants his reader to understand and to be clear about the true grace of God. Thus, the teaching of this letter. He teaches them about the true grace of God. And having become clear about this true grace, he urges them and calls us to stand firm in it, to be established, to hold our ground, to not concede. And everything that he writes in this letter is aiming toward this end. This is true of his opening greeting, which will be our text for this morning, verses 1 and 2. Peter's address of his readers, and he calls them elect and exiles. This address is significant and frames our lives in a manner that is both encouraging and helpful for understanding our present experience in the world. And this comes down to a question of belonging. To whom do we belong as Christians? This morning, we'll first explore this question and then consider its implications for our relationship to the culture around us. In the process, I trust that we'll come to understand a bit more of what this epistle has in store for us in the weeks and months ahead. So first, to whom do we belong? Peter's opening word after introducing himself is to the elect. This is made more explicit in the NIV, which says to God's elect. You are the chosen people of God. This was language that was used of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Israel, the covenant people of God, were God's chosen people. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And now Peter takes this language so significant and central in the Old Testament and applies it to his readers, to those who are in Christ. You belong to God. You are God's chosen people. We think, most of Peter, we, we think that most of Peter's original re readers were actually Gentiles, based on how Peter describes their former manner of life at several points in this letter. What an incre incredible reversal then, that <clears throat> these Gentiles, who were once outsiders and not a part of the people of God, now have a privileged place of being God's people. Now they are God's people. Peter states this explicitly in chapter 2, verse 10. Once, he says, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. There is no greater blessing and no higher calling, no richer privilege than to be known as the people of God, than to belong to this God. This is the God who made everything that we see. This is the God who shaped our, our hearts and our longings, who put us together and stitched us together in our mother's womb. To know him is the great privilege. That is what the Bible proclaims and offers to all of us. It is to be known by God and to know this God. And what Peter is saying to these Christians beleaguered and struggling and in hardship is, you are known by God, you belong to God, you've been chosen by God. What a tremendous encouragement this would be as people heard this letter read for the first time. 
he amplifies this declaration with three prepositional phrases in verse 2. And I want to take those briefly in turn. Our, our being chosen, he says, is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This idea of foreknowledge means that what is working out now is in accordance with a plan that God had intended before the world began. And it means specifically that God initiated and chose us before we had done anything to deserve this. Paul writes in Galatians 1, he says that, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. And he means to declare by saying this, that there is nothing in him either of pedigree or of performance that, that is connected to the choice of God for him and to the grace of God in his life. This was something that he had no worth for and that even his unworthiness for did not preclude him from. God's sovereign grace is foundational in our lives. There is mystery here for sure, but great reassurance, especially to those who find themselves in the midst of suffering. As one confession from the Reformation states, quote, our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, end quote. Further, the foreknowledge of God does not merely imply cognitive knowledge. To know, biblically speak, speaking, implies a deeper kind of relational knowledge that bears fruit. Thus, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Or in Genesis 18, verse 19, God knew Abraham that he and his children might bear fruit by keeping the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice. This knowing brought the people of God into a covenantal relationship that entailed intimacy and reciprocity and fruitfulness. For God to foreknow us is for God in his sovereign power to acknowledge us for a binding relationship to him where we are known and his will is accomplished and fruit is the result. It's no surprise then that when Peter connects this word foreknowledge, he does so, he connects it to the word father. Father connotes an intimacy of relationship associated biblically with knowing and bearing fruit. Romans 8.29, another place where this word foreknowledge appears in the New Testament. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's foreknowledge was to create a family, a family of likeness to Jesus. It bore fruit by drawing people into an intimate relationship with him. And Peter is saying something similar here. This foreknowledge involves a depth of relationship, a covenantal relationship that will bear fruit in the world. Continuing, Peter says this choosing is in the sanctification of the spirit in verse 2. That's the ESV, which I prefer here to the NIVs through the sanctifying work of the spirit. Because this word sanctification leaves open a, a range of meaning from consecration that is, we are set apart by God through the work of the Spirit that applies the reality of Christ's work on the cross to us individually for a special and holy purpose. So consecration, we are set apart for a unique purpose. And sanctification, which is the outworking of the Spirit's power in our lives as we are conformed to the image of our elder brother Jesus and become more and more holy, which is a theme that Peter will take up later in chapter 1. Both consecration and sanctification are implied here. We are set apart and we are growing in holiness day by day through the Spirit's power. And the final phrase in verse 2 is that this choosing is to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. 
or the more direct translation of for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. These are two expressions that describe one reality. And that new reality is participation in the new covenant people of God. This phrase harkens back in talking about obedience and the sprinkling of blood, harkens back to what we read from Exodus 24. This moment when God ratifies and begins and establishes his covenant relationship with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Because there they pledge full obedience to God. And then Moses takes the blood from the fellowship offerings and sprinkles it upon the people. Covenant membership entails full obedience and atonement or covering by the blood. And Peter is saying in this last phrase in verse 2 that this is what you have been chosen for. Membership in the new covenant community of the people of God, the family of God. A covenant that is inaugurated by the shed blood of Jesus, which has cleansed us. And calls forth our full obedience, empowered by the Spirit. You belong to God. You are his chosen people. And this is the result of God's sovereign and gracious action. The Father chooses us. The Spirit sets us apart for obedient participation in the new covenant. And in that new covenant is inaugurated by the Son's shed blood. Do you catch the Trinitarian reference here that this is the work of the triune God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son all working together to make us a unique people? We can almost hear Peter asking the question to those in hardship to whom he writes, would this God, this God who has chosen you, this God whose initiative and sovereign grace is the work and the foundation of your lives, would this God forget you? Would this God abandon you? Absolutely not. You are his chosen people. So be encouraged. You belong. Be humble because you belong for no merits of your, own, of your own life, but you belong by the pure, simple, and wonderful grace of God. Ephesians 2 is great on this point, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Be humbled, Peter would say to us, because you are part of the people of God. These are amazing privileges that he will begin to elucidate in verse 3 as we'll begin to look at next week. And then press on, not only be encouraged, not only be humbled, but press on in light of this fact that you belong. Because this belonging entails an ongoing obedience that bears fruit in the world around us. Yes, you belong to God. But that belonging and the fact of that belonging is what leads Peter to use the second word. And we transition now to that second word by which he describes his readers. And the word is exiles. Exiles. You are, in Peter's words, exiles that are scattered. Or more precisely, exiles of the dispersion. Or the diaspora. That's the underlying Greek word here. And it's a technical word that describes the Jews living outside of the promised land during the time of their exile. In foreign cultures and under foreign leaders. By calling his readers exiles of the diaspora, Peter is evoking this particular history of Israel. And saying that this is what now describes our situation. This is reinforced by the fact that at the end of the letter he says he's writing to them from Babylon. Babylon was the place that many of God's people were carried off into exile in the mid-6th century B.C. 
Peter's point is we are the scattered people of God living in exile in cultures and lands with which we are not entirely in sync because our values, aims, and allegiances differ from those of the culture. We are, as Jesus prayed in John 17, in the world, but we are not of the world. Because we are God's chosen, because we belong to him, we don't belong to the culture around us in which we find ourselves, whether that's the culture of Pontus or Cappadocia or of Boston or London or Moscow. I uh, played the trumpet in sixth grade. I started playing the trumpet and I, I learned it for a few years, which meant that in my freshman year in high school, I was in the marching band at our high school. We had a pretty big high school. The band was quite serious and competitive, and I'm sure maybe others of you had this experience, but we got to compete in the state championship at Mile High Stadium in the marching band championship in Colorado for schools in our division. And in this marching band experience, we all, of course, wore the same uniform, the same shoes, which were maybe the coolest shoes that I've ever owned, the same hats, and we played our music together, the same music. What makes this experience work is that we were all looking to the same drum major to give us guidance, to keep us in step. But imagine for a moment if I had had a different drum major. If you took a picture of the band from mid-range up in Mile High Stadium on that day, you would have seen us all standing in line as we were awaiting the first notes. I would have looked a bit like I fit in. But the moment that the music began, I would suddenly be the one dot on the field that was going the wrong direction, bumping into other musicians and creating a little bit of havoc and chaos. Discord and certainly friction would result. That's a bit like our situation as exiles. We sort of fit, but we sort of don't. We have a different drum major, different values, different aims, different allegiances from those of the culture. And our status, therefore, as exiles, our non-belonging, because we belong to God, our non-belonging to the culture around us creates two particular challenges. First, there is the inevitable tension with the culture that we will experience and friction that can at times and does in places even in large swaths of today's world and even in our own culture in differing degrees bubble up over into suffering. How then are we to handle this? Especially when the culture's response to our differences, our different values and allegiances turns unjust or even violent. It's here, of course, that Peter expounds this great theme of the letter of hope to the benefits that belong to us as those who belong to God and to the promised future that awaits us, that is assured for us because of the resurrection of Jesus. Peter expounds the privileges. He carries a great reflection on Christian self-understanding, on our identity in this letter, because it is that grounding that enables us to bear up under the tension and friction that results because of our non-belonging to the culture. So that's one set of questions. How do we bear up? How do we, how do we persist when that tension bubbles over. But a second set of questions, and equally as important and relevant, and I hope illuminating for us as we engage in this study, is the question of how then do we engage with our culture? What role can we play in the band if we march to a different 
drum. While belonging to God means not belonging to the culture around us, this doesn't mean, as we read 1 Peter, that we circle the wagons and practice some kind of escapism. It also doesn't mean that we give up our distinctives and just join in the culture's music. It's much more nuanced than this. Peter rejects the simplistic solutions of either full rejection of our culture or complete assimilation to our culture and encourages rather a mixture of rejection and accommodation, subversion and redemption of the culture around us. This is a kind of differentiated engagement, engagement without losing that which is our distinctive, but engagement that engages in a real and tangible way. And this kind of engagement means that the majority culture does not primarily encounter our voice as one of critic or judge. And this will become clearer as we get into the letter. Further, this non-belonging does not entitle us to perpetuate a victim mentality about ourselves or to seek to perpetuate an us-them paradigm that fuels mistrust, suspicion, and misunderstanding. These approaches are all too common in the church today, but they are not what the New Testament and they are not what the, the letter of 1 Peter encourages in us. Instead, Peter calls us to live such compelling lives, such good lives, that it causes those around us to ask questions about the hope that we have. That's chapter 3, verse 15. There's admittedly a lot of nuance here and a lot that needs unpacking. And much of that remains ahead of us in our study. Let me address specifically our context, the church in America and the church in New England. We have spent quite a bit of time at the center of culture when the kinds of possibilities envisioned by Peter seemed far-fetched. And it is not lost on me in the slightest that I am preaching to you from a beautiful building in the center of our city that sits on the Boston Common. But we cannot let our central location fool us into thinking that we are still cultural insiders. If we do, we will likely be deformed as the people of God. And this is something that Peter urges us to be on guard against by a regular diet of the word of God and by a deep immersion into the loving community of the people of God. Peter calls us to love one another at several points in this letter. The reality is, is that we live in an increasingly secular age. You don't need me to cite the statistics that could back up this claim. They're all over the place. I recently finished reading a biography of A.J. Gordon, the pastor of the once thriving Clarendon Street Baptist Church from 1869 until his untimely death in 1895, also known better to us as the founder of Gordon College. That church that Gordon pastored was a church whose bulletins in 1949 at least read as a subtitle, The Church Known Round the World. What is it today? 60 condos. Granted, the transition to condos in this church's case was precipitated by a fire in 1982, but the church wasn't rebuilt as a church. It was bought by developers in 1990 and developed into the 60 condo building and structure that it is today. 
And I'm pained by countless other examples of churches turned condos in our city. Peter was writing to Christians who found themselves a socio-politically excluded religious minority. We are not quite there, in my opinion, but we are closer than we ever have been. And the idea that Christians could more explicitly suffer for their faith in this culture in the coming decades is not by any means far-fetched. The question is, will we be ready? How will we engage as those who belong to God but do not belong to the culture? This is, of course, already the experience of countless Christians in our world today around the globe, and we have much to learn from their example, as I'm sure those of you who have joined the class that Julian is teaching on the church in China will be learning about. We also have much to learn from Peter's words to the Christians in Asia Minor in the first century. This letter is a sumptuous feast that awaits us. We've begun with merely a small nibble on an appetizer today, but we desperately need the kind of functional maturity that the truths that Peter reflects upon in this letter will produce in those who hear what he writes and who begin to embody it and put it into practice. We desperately need to hear his exposition of the benefits of the identity that we share in Jesus, of this wonderful gift of belonging to God as his chosen people. And we need also to hear Peter's reflections as he begins in chapter 2, verse 11, moving forward on how we might, as these unique people, engage a culture with which we are not entirely in sync. And my prayer and longing in taking up this letter together is that we too will be enabled to stand firm in the true grace of God as the people of God, as a people of hope. These opening two verses finish with words that I want to finish with you. Peter says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now, many of us will, will, will shove the entirety of Christian theology into these words, and in some ways that's legitimate. It may also be that this is just the common way that a Jewish person would have greeted someone in the church in that day. But I think it's a fitting place to end as we think about those being those who belong to God but don't belong to our culture. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. As we take up this letter, may grace and peace become more and more of our experience as the people of God seeking to bear faithful witness to him in a culture with which we are not entirely in sync. And may fruit be born, fruit in our own lives and fruit in our world to the glory of our risen king. Let's pray. O oh God, our Father, we cry out to you for your grace and mercy. How we thank you for the incredible privilege that it is to belong to you. And how we long for you to meet us and speak to us into the nuanced challenge that it is to not belong to the culture in which we find ourselves. Lord, may you pour out your spirit upon us, we pray, that we would grow up into maturity in your son and bear faithful witness to him in word and deed in this world that desperately needs a reason to hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.